0: Today we're looking at the hope of the resurrection. The text is going to be First Thessalonians four thirteen to eighteen. You can see your handout. Um, let me just start by saying this: It's always true that the wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty three. We're all responsible participants in our own deaths. Death happens to me, to you, you know, because we're sinners, and in our transgression we've attracted the just wrath of God. And that wrath is God's personal, judicial reaction to the transgression in which we have responsibly indulged in as people, right? We're all under this sentence of death. We're all, all of us, we're terminal cases. Even if we're full of life and healthy right now, and full acceptance of this truth can remove a fair amount of unnecessary shock and rebellion when you or a loved one are in a hospital bed dying. We must escape the modern Western mindset that refuses to look at death, to plan for death, to live in the light of death, to expect death. Uh, Thanks be to God that for the Christian, our existence doesn't end in death. If we're trusting in Jesus, then our final destination is not the grave, but a physical resurrection body. Because Jesus died and rose again, and we are in him, and he is our federal head, then whatever happens to Jesus, happens to us. Jesus has a glorified resurrection body, and we'll have one too. A body given to us when our Lord returns from heaven with his holy ones to consummate his eternal kingdom. And if we have loved ones then, who have died in Jesus Christ, we will meet them again in their resurrection bodies. And so, the overarching thrust of our Sunday School text this morning is this In light of this glorious truth, how then are we to grieve as Christians for other Christians who have died? That's the question. That's truly the question, but we're going to be approaching this from the side door. Our focus this morning is eccentric, it's off center. What we're asking is this. And this is not what the text is asking. What we're asking is this. What does 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 teach us about a post-tribulation rapture? And we're asking that because I want to correct a serious eschatological mistake believed by millions of Christians. But I need to be careful I don't make the same mistake that they do by teaching this passage removed from its context. Because they're asking... What does 1 Thessalonians 4 teach us about a pre-tribulation rapture? I'm asking, what does this text teach us about a post-tribulation rapture? (laughs) Post-trib, pre-trib, it's not what this text is primarily concerned with. So we're approaching this eccentrically, okay? It's off-center. As we learned the other week, and you see this in your handout, the word rapture is not a New Testament word. The English word comes from the Latin verb rapio, seize or carry away which was used in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, to translate the Greek uh, word that appears in 1 Thessalonians four seventeen. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It's all one word. We will be caught up. The popular, but not biblical, this is in your handout, but not biblical, I would argue, sense of rapture is this. Christians are physically moved off the earth into heaven by the Lord. And I would say wrong. We looked at this two weeks ago. That's wrong. This physical taking away is usually thought to be necessary to rescue believers from harm, the final tribulation. I also argued, I believe that's wrong. No, the more important aspect of rapture in the New Testament is bodily transformation. Theologically, rapture is best seen as a parallel to resurrection. When the Lord returns, the dead Christians are raised from the dead, living Christians are raptured, and both are brought into Christ's presence as he continues... To earth, to reign. So obviously, 1 Thessalonians 4 is a key text for formulating an understanding of the events surrounding our Lord's return. Let me humbly suggest, friend, if you have a settled opinion on these things but you don't yet have a clear understanding of 1 Thessalonians 4, then you need to go back to the drawing board. So let's look at this text: 1 Thessalonians 4:13. that there was a lot of misunderstanding in the early church surrounding the resurrection of believers. There were people in the Corinthian church who who were proclaiming that there was no resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine? That's a pretty big mistake to be making. Uh, There were people in Timothy's church, 2 Timothy 2.18, who were saying the resurrection had already taken place. Imagine a, a church down the street was saying that, right? And the Thessalonians were experiencing great grief because of the death of one or more of their members, but they were grieving like pagans, people who have no hope. The Thessalonian church wasn't allowing their confession of Jesus' death and his resurrection to inform their reaction. And so Paul has to respond with the appropriate teaching so they're not overwhelmed by grief, because they are. But, all right, before we get into the thick of things, I want us to note that Paul's purpose here, this is so important, it's distinctly pastoral. He's urging the church to use this teaching to comfort one another so they may grieve as people who have hope. That's why he's writing this. This passage is not designed to satisfy idle speculative curiosity about the last times. All right? so I'm approaching it that way in a certain sense. It's off-center. Uh, its purpose is to encourage Christians who are facing the most profound grief a human being can experience. Paul saying, let me console you about your loved ones who have died in the Lord. There's real hope. So that's why in this series of last things, I want to actually take time to exegete texts. So there can be, maybe here's a systematic theology of rapture or, you know, last thing. But actually, then here's text we're going to look at and exegete them in their context, okay? So look at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And that... That phrase, sleep in death, that's very interesting. I love that phrase. Um, That's the same expression that actually Luke uses when he's describing the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Stephen's death was was very violent. He, he, He had his brains bashed out with rocks outside Jerusalem. But Luke says he fell asleep. And what's implied there, of course, is that one day Stephen's going to wake up. All the dead Christians will wake up. And it's a phrase that gives us hope because it entails consciousness and life. There has been an interruption, right? But it's merely of sleep. And though the body dies, the spirit lives on in the Lord's presence. Sometimes you hear something called soul sleep. where just, we're basically our soul is just unconscious for 3,000, 5,000, however many years it will be until Christ returns. That's not correct. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. When we die, our spirits go to be with the Lord instantaneously. We're not asleep in the ground with our souls sleeping. Um, As we proceed further into the text, we'll see that one day when Jesus returns to earth, the spirits, I hear this, okay, the spirits of dead Christians will return with Jesus to be reunited with their dead bodies. So think of that picture, okay? The spirits of dead Christians returning with Jesus to be reunited with their dead bodies, which will now be glorified resurrection bodies for all of eternity. And that's something, as Christians, we can't afford afford to be ignorant of that. Uh, We need to think about that future reality a lot. Uh, It's fundamental to our worldview. It's what keeps us from grieving, like the rest of humanity who have no hope in the face of death. As verse 13 says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's just, it's so stark. They have no hope. Unbelievers have no hope. Life is mere vanity. It's a passing vapor. And grieving unbelievers can tell themselves nothing, nothing that's of real consolation. I mean, I'm sure you've been to an unbeliever's funeral service and just what the trite platitudes that are expressed. People are grieving. They don't know what to do. And it's just, there's just no hope. It's a hopeless scenario. And as somebody who's a Christian there who has the hope of the gospel, our heart breaks. It's very different for the Christian. Certainly, we're human beings. We have emotions. We do grieve. We can deeply, deeply grieve. But our grief is tempered and informed by the hope that we hold, a hope that's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of his coming. Verse 14. Verse 14. Look at, look at how he phrases this. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, because of that, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. How can Christians have hope in the face of death? Because Jesus' resurrection, his own resurrection, has launched the final resurrection of all the saints. And so we have hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And the inevitable result... That Jesus died and rose again is that uh, we, all who have been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, we will rise too. That's Paul's argument. And that's the hope that he hands out to grieving Christians. Over and over, the Bible teaches the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of the resurrection of believers. In fact, these events are so intimately connected in salvation history that Paul could dare proclaim in, in to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15 that The denial of our bodily resurrection actually constitutes a denial of Christ's resurrection. He works backwards. If you're saying you don't rise from the dead, it's like you're saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He works backwards. It's amazing. Therefore, we have hope even in the midst of death because those who die in Christ are even now with him. And when Jesus returns, the souls of those Christians who have died in him will return with him and be reunited with their glorified resurrection bodies now we're gonna unpack this what does this look like how does this happen but just any questions about this so far i'm getting this is more kind of sermon mode as opposed to maybe sunday school mode in a certain sense but ask ask away anything that you would like clarification on before we kind of start really diving into the deep end of things we're all in agreement all right (laughs) good is this your hope it's something else to think about too. Just pastoral, I would ask you that. Is that your hope? You know, it's actually, as a loved one dies in Jesus Christ, you grieve deeply. But it's like, I'm going to see them again. They're in Jesus Christ. I will see them again. In fact, now Paul goes into it. And here's what's going to happen when Christ returns. <clears throat> Look at verse 15. We're going to be looking now at Christ's coming and the resurrection. According to the Lord's word, interesting of phrase, We tell you that we, who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what these three verses are doing is they're elaborating on further details about Jesus coming and how the resurrection of Christians will take place, all within the context, obviously, of providing consolation to grieving Christians. Again, it's not just abstract eschatology, right? It's actually in the context of grieving Christians. This is what Paul says. Notice verse fifteen. According to the Lord's word, what I think what Paul's doing here between verses uh, chapter four fifteen to five seven, which is a big chunk. Paul is recollecting, he is basically paraphrasing the words of Jesus recorded in the Olivet Discourse. We looked at that a few weeks ago, only this one's from Matthew 24. We looked at Luke 21, but he's paraphrasing basically Matthew 24. There are many parallels between that text and this text. It's not just a coincidence. There's no way. Both talk about the return of Jesus from heaven accompanied by angels with the trumpet of God of believers being gathered to Christ in the clouds. The time is unknown, like a thief in the night. Unbelievers are unaware of their impending judgment. God's judgment comes as pain upon an expectant mother. Believers are not deceived. Uh, Believers are to be watchful. And there's a warning against drunkenness. There's a lot of parallels there. Both texts, in their context, are affirming many of the same things, but there are different emphases for both. The teaching Jesus gave right, which Paul now presents, is that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, that last generation of Christians, who knows when that will be, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to go first. That's what he's saying. For some reason or another, the Thessalonians needed to know that at the time of the Lord's coming, the living believers would not precede the dead. They were apparently thinking, you have to do some mirror reading here, like, why, why, why this concern, right? They were apparently thinking only the living Christians would have the honor of going out to meet the Lord Jesus in his royal, triumphant coming. Those who are dead, oh, it's just too bad. You know, they're gonna have no part in this. And to be clear, there, there is a first century cultural slash historical context to this fear that we need to be made aware of. As people read this text in Greek, or um, as as Paul's letters are circulating to the churches, and somebody would stand up and they would just they would read the text, obviously in Greek, to the church. You're just you're hearing it. They would be assuming something that we're not with our English translations. As I just as I mentioned, um, pre-tribulational dispensationalists view this text as a rescue, right? So we we, we looked at that in First Thessalonians four what we have here to a premillennial dispensational point of view is one of two stages of Jesus' return that rescues the church from the final tribulation and the persecution of Antichrist. They are removed from earth to heaven in a secret rapture. That has nothing to do with with the original context of the passage, either pastorally and providing consolation for grieving Christians, or culturally. I'm saying culturally, that has nothing to do with this. When the early church read verses 15 and 17, they were all thinking of just one thing. Paul uses the word. is something called parousia. I don't usually get into Greek words and say them like that, but it's like, it's the Greek word for coming. It's a good word to know. You know about koinonia? Parousia, there's another good one, right? It's a technical term, it's rooted in the culture, and Paul uses that word deliberately in verse 15. We who are still alive, who are left till the parousia, the coming of the Lord. That's what parousia means, coming, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In first century culture, parousia was a term that commonly meant the glorious coming of a deity or the official sovereign to a city. Who himself was often considered divine in this culture so when caesar shows up that kind of thing an imperial visit or parousia that what it was called was an occasion for great pomp and magnificent celebrations with rich banquets speeches that praised the imperial visitor a visit to the local temple rich uh, donations celebrations of uh, celebrations of games sacrifices statues dedicated arches and other buildings constructed, money was minted to commemorate the event, crowns of gold were given out, and sometimes a new era was inaugurated. So you can see how you can kind of appropriate that culturally and make make it very biblical in a sense. And when this great dignitary came to the city, the officials and a multitude of people would head out of the city to receive him all dressed in special clothing. In this text, Jesus is coming. It's his parousia that's being discussed. But the Thessalonians were apparently thinking only the living believers would have the honor of going out to meet the Lord in his royal and triumphant advent. So Paul dismantles this year by saying it won't just be the living who go out to meet the Lord. In fact, fact, the dead in Christ will rise first. And they will have uh, the place of honor in the procession. The dead in Christ will in no way be excluded from the grand celebration that will surround the coming of the Lord, but will instead enjoy the place of honor. And recognition of this fact would give the the living believers great comfort in their grief. So now they're looking ahead to, oh, that's pastorally, here's what Paul has just told me, My, my dead loved one, they certainly will not miss out on the parousia of Jesus Christ. In fact... They're going to be in the vanguard of the procession, the place of honor to meet the Lord in the air, if he comes during my lifetime. That's what they're thinking. It's encouragement. Brothers and sisters, this text is not the stuff of speculative prophecy, right? Or bestseller end times novels. Uh, this text is located in a funeral home, in the memorial service. This text is firmly placed at the graveside. It's, a, it's placed in the hands of each believer to comfort other believers in their time of greatest sorrow. That's its purpose. I, I say this in love, I pray, I say this in humility, but the bizarre picture of airplanes dropping out of the sky and cars careening over cliffs as a secret rapture whisks away the church detracts from the hope that this message is designed to teach. The picture presented here is of the royal coming of Jesus. The church, as the official delegation, goes out to meet him, with the dead in Christ heading up the procession as the most honored. One coming is envisioned, which unites the coming king with his loyal subjects. All of his subjects, living and dead. This is all about our glorious hope. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. Again, this, is, this can be a secret rapture text. Just listen to it. It's nothing secret about this. The Lord will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is not a secret event. The coming of the Lord will occur amid a great amount of heavenly noise (laughs) as God gives his order that the dead be raised. First, there will be a loud command, which is a command that must be obeyed because it is the exalted Jesus Christ giving that command. Let me just read to you from John 5. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Jesus gives his command, and the dead in Christ rise first. That's the point Paul's making. The dead will not remain in their tombs and lose the opportunity of going out to receive their sovereign Lord in the clouds. Rather, before the grand entourage goes out, they will be raised to life. They will have that place of privilege. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left. Okay, just, it's an easy question, I hope. But just, What does that mean? We who are still alive and are left. Who's that referring to? living, living, living Christians. that's right at the time of what yes right. that's good <laughs> that's good <laughs> we who are al- still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and again that's the text where that greek word is for rapture for in the in the latin right uh, we uh caught up together with them all kind of one word now it's, it's the turn of the Christians who are still alive when Jesus returns to go uh, to meet their Lord. It's their turn now. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, I want us to turn there. This might be a good text. We're going to actually look at this later on in our series, but Paul tells us that our earthly bodies will change into glorified resurrection bodies, and together with those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, the entire people of God will go out in procession to meet their sovereign Lord. So 1 Corinthians 15, 50-55, He writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to die. You know, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, it's talking about the same event. And what's the result then of this meeting our Lord in the clouds, in the air? Verse 17b of 1 Thessalonians 4. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think it's just so important to actually zero in on those last two little bits. Again, we're not... this isn't about like removal from, from conflict to escape, but it's actually, it's bringing us into the presence of Jesus Christ forever. That's the whole point of it. And he's saying, encourage each other, encourage. It's not have speculative prophecy conferences, blah, blah, blah. It's actually, this is for the funeral home. I said this a couple weeks ago. My plan is the first member of New City who dies is going to be this Texas through funeral service. All right? So get ready. <laughs> In conclusion, I want you to really think about the loss of your Christian loved ones and how you are to grieve for them as Christians. The tears are still there. The grief is no less profound. Uh, The sense of personal loss may be devastating, but somehow there's no grim despair, right? There's no grim despair. You go to other funeral services with unbelievers, there is grim despair. It's terrible to see. We grieve, yes, but not like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Our ultimate hope is a new heaven and a new earth where God's dwelling place, Revelation 21, is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in him will live though he dies, John 11:25). And this truth must not only shape our approach to bereavement, but our assessment of illness and of our own approaching deaths. That's all I got for that. It's a bit early today, but any, any questions? Any comments? I do have a question. Okay. Probably it's not, not something you can infer from that test, but uh, as you were talking about the, you know, the resurrection of the, you know, the Christian, the, the ones who died in the past, and the ones who yep. could left, you know, whatever yep. it would be tomorrow, could be a thousand years. Yep. But you know, like Daniel and Rachel, and uh, Rachel, but Daniel and John speaks of the, you know, the resurrection of the entire human race. Mm-hmm. So that resurrection is going to happen at this moment, or it's going to happen after the symbolic thousand years that Revelation speaks up? up? Now, why are you saying symbolic seven thousand uh, years? <laughs> okay, <laughs> thousand years. I think yes. Revelation is a, it's a full symbol. Yeah. yeah. So from my perspective, that should be yeah. too. But anyways, that's a discussion for another day. No, no, it's a good question. We're going to come to it explicitly. And okay. you have in the book of, Resur- of Revelation the second resurrection. It actually mentions that. So how mm-hmm. do you deal with that? Um, I'll just say I'll just say a couple of things. One thing for sure. Um, remember how a while back I talked about the mountain range of prophecy? Did, were you guys here mm-hmm. for that? Where the Old Testament prophets are speaking of of coming events, but there's no like if you're standing in Alberta, and you can basically see mountain ranges all the way to BC kind of thing, right? It just looks like, oh, that's like one mountain cap is, is next to the next peak, next to the next peak. No, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles between them. New Old Testament prophets don't really seem to differentiate that, that sequence in there. And I think that's something that you have here too when it comes to the resurrection. So Daniel and Daniel 12 mentioning the resurrection. It all sounds like it's in one shot. And, 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 and many New Testament writers too are just saying, it makes it sound like it's all just in one shot. The resurrection of the just and the unjust at the same moment and then wham, judgment day, two seconds later kind of thing. And so you look at it, this text, that's what it looks like. You know? If you had no other text to go by, this would be what you're thinking. So we have to look into that, what it means by the second resurrection, the millennial period as well. We haven't come to that stuff yet. I know you're all just chomping at the bit, just waiting for it. <laughs> it's coming down the pike. What we're looking at next week, Lord willing, is going to be the man of sin text uh, from Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, so we'll wait for that. But it's an excellent question. I'm not trying to duck it. No, no, I'm not but it's, it, it, it's, it's coming. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm trying to give all the background I can first before we get to the really controversial stuff so any other thoughts questions alright is, is any oh Alicia? I wonder how to think about kind of people's spirits being alive separate from their bodies mm. in some way and what, what does that mean yeah. and also the fact that we believe that Jesus is is risen bodily now right yeah. so he lives in heaven embodied that's true in that's true yeah. so what like and it's part of it is about time, right? Like, they're not experiencing time in the same way as us, probably. my But, you know, what... A big part of my thinking about anthropology as a human being is it's in an embodied, embodied spirit, like, mm. the, the whole, the totality. Yeah. Or does it need to be separate for thousands of years? Yeah. Or for, you know, in some way, until like, the resurrection of the dead? We get into that a little bit with First Corinthians 15 when we come there, but I would also say, this actually was... I was talking to a friend of mine who died a few years ago, his, his widow. Um, and just talking about Andrew's death. He's with the Lord now. His spirit is there with, with, with the Lord. But he doesn't have a resurrection body. And even at this point, you read this in Revelation too, how long, oh Lord, until there's like, justice is going to be done? And like, there's like, there's, there's still a longing. Like, things have not been completely made new in that sense. There's still, it's better to be with the Lord. Paul says that. Um, but it's not, that eschatological, absolute perfection of the new heavens and new earth where actually you're, just like Jesus, you have a resurrection body and your spirit and your resurrection body are together and you're filled with the Holy Spirit forever. That hasn't been experienced yet by people who have passed away, who have died. They're still, they're still waiting. They're still anticipating and they're still crying out, how long, oh Lord? You know, May your purposes come quickly. Yeah. So that intermediate state, I mean, there isn't a whole lot in the Bible written about it. And there's just a few texts. And uh, so getting into the nitty-gritty, I don't know. A lot of that is, I don't know. I don't like what well, you're right. There's there's a a corporal Jesus with a real resurrection body, physical body. And he's in heaven. He's with the Lord, but he's like, sitting at his right hand. He's physical in that sense. Um, and his people are spirits. Their spirits are there. They're with the Lord, but uh, I don't know how to work it all out but but we know from here you're actually seeing and then the spirits and the bodies who might be just dust or eaten by sharks thousands of years ago all over the place like somehow it all works out that the the spirit our dead spirit like us and our body come together as one on that last day and the dead in christ will rise first okay stuff to think about (laughs) pray about and uh, if you guys have any questions you want, like, clarify or if you're struggling with anything, that, you know, if, if this is kind of upending anything, what you're thinking of the return of Christ, come talk to me. I'm always open to talk to you about things, okay? I don't think anybody's going through a hard time, but I just want to be, be sure that's the case. So. All right, and I'll leave you to it. Next week, Lord Building, we'll look at the Antichrist.